0: Phronesis,
1: Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Frenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ILA Globalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good day, everyone. Uh, Today, I have Dr. Gil Hickman with me, and I am so excited for this conversation. We've had a pre-conversation. We kind of charted a course, and... I think it's going to be a really, really fun conversation. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. I think it's going to be a very, very important conversation. And Gil is a professor emeritus. Did I pronounce that correctly, Gil? Emeritus? Amerita. Amerita. Okay, Amerita <laughs> from the University of Richmond. She was a founding faculty member at the Jepson School of Leadership. She is a shining light in leadership studies. She has published textbooks, she has published books, she has published journal articles, she has won awards. She is the bee's knees. <laughs> and so, today we are going to explore a few different topics, but Gill what uh, what blanks can we fill in? What what do other listeners need to know about you? What other facts and figures?
1: Well, there are a lot of things going on. <laughs> I have had a long career. I've had actually I was telling my grandchild the other day, I've had three different careers. I started as an administrator. Uh and while I was going through the Ph.D. program, I was an administrator in human resource management and higher education. Ah. And so when I finished, I was recruited onto the faculty because I had been teaching for free. Oh. And my department chair and dean came over and said, look, you've been teaching public administration courses for free. Yeah. Why don't you consider the faculty? <laughs> and I thought, this is crazy. Anything you do for free should be something you should consider for your <laughs> career. <laughs> you know? So uh, they graciously gave me a year to come over and try it out as a a visiting professor. And then I actually applied for the permanent position. And that's where I got started in teaching Ah. in public administration. Yeah. Yeah. And when I came to Richmond, I uh, was looking for another position. My husband was relocated here in Richmond and the Jepson school was just recruiting faculty they had four faculty on board they were they hadn't opened officially oh wow and uh so i came on the faculty the inaugural year and all of the courses were just listed on paper nobody had taught them <laughs> they,
0: were <theory. laughs> they were theory at the point right
1: <laughs> they were theory so we just literally started from scratch
0: oh wow Wow. Well, I was reflecting this morning that one of my faculty members at Antioch was Richard Kudo. And I was reflecting this morning on how well prepared I felt because of what he came from out of Jepson he did such a wonderful job of helping us become really steeped in the literature uh whether that was burns or whether that was sacred texts or plato or you know it, it was just and so if that's a hint of what students were experiencing at Jepson i mean it's just such an incredibly valuable experience and and so what one thing i'd love to chat with you about is talk about can you can you think about the roots of where you became interested in this topic of leadership? How has that path been for you?
1: Yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. But let me just say, I love Richard Kudo, uh, Dick Kudo. I miss him so much. Yeah. I still use so much of the things that I learned from him. And I just wish he were still with us. But he is in many ways. Yeah. So thank you for bringing him up.
0: Yeah.
1: Um my roots in leadership studies really started as a teenager. At the time, of course, I didn't realize it, but being a teenager right in the middle of the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, taught me a tremendous amount about leadership. Wow. Um, at the time, I I didn't realize it, but people in Birmingham were joining in the movement and especially teenagers and young people like I was at the time, because everyone really had the same focus. We knew what the problem was. Uh, We have been searching for a way to penetrate that problem and issue. At the beginning of the civil rights movement, children and teenagers like me were just willing to go out and join in because we realized that, If we didn't, who would? At that point, I was really involved in leadership and didn't know it. I was trying daring things, uh, scaring my parents to death. (laughs) As soon as as they said that the buses were integrated, for example, of course, we, we were doing a bus boycott and an economic boycott. We were not Buying anything, we didn't have to. Um, but as soon as they integrated the buses, I thought I'm going to try this. I mean, I didn't take buses anywhere. My parents didn't. Uh, they were in a position where they could drive me wherever I wanted to go. But I just wanted to do it for the sake of it, yeah. <laughs> to prove pr- prove that it should be done. And I got on with a friend, and we sat on the front seat, and uh, people started. Talking about us and saying we didn't belong there. And uh, literally, a woman hit me with her umbrella and told me to move and get off. Really? And yes. And uh, I did not do it, but it was really a, a hostile environment, but one that we were willing to face because the consequences were so strong. Yeah. So it probably... Is one of the reasons that I finally did wind up in public administration because uh, it it prepares you to lead in the public sector. Yeah. And I I did not well leadership studies was really not in fashion by at that point. No. And it and especially not in public administration at that point. But I always had this drive to change something. And I like changing things from the inside. (laughs) Uh,
0: Would you tell us a couple stories about things you experienced? I I mean, the the story of the bus is a a beautiful story. What were some other things that you witnessed firsthand that, I mean, one of the highlights of my doctoral program was we had Fred Shuttlesworth and and Fred Shuttlesworth had a book called The Fire You Can't Put Out. And he came and spoke to us. And and we could get into a long conversation about him because it was so fascinating, Gil, because he, when he spoke with us, he, he really didn't perceive himself as a leader having done any of it. It was just God working through him, right? And And so it was really fascinating because when we would say, when you did this, what were you thinking? He said, I wasn't thinking anything. I was just a vessel for God. And so it was a really interesting conversation to, to hear from him and to hear that perspective. But what are some other stories or experiences you had in that time that stand out for you, where you, you witnessed good, bad, horrible leadership?
1: Yes. Fred Shuttlesworth uh, obviously is an icon. Uh, they have renamed the airport after him, actually.
0: I didn't know that.
1: And they have a whole exhibit on the civil rights movement in the airport, as well as a whole civil rights museum. I witnessed everything. uh, When I started school in Birmingham, it was segregated Hmm. and we had only uh, segregated schools. We had all all black teachers, all black students. We couldn't even we couldn't even go to the school closest to our neighborhood. We actually had to be bused out of our neighborhood to go to the nearest black high school. So I really got to witness everything about segregation, the intimidation from the police. I mean, even when I went to get my driver's license, the police were so hostile. And, you know, I was 16 yeah, and not expecting a hostile police uh to to really try to intimidate me while i was getting my driver's license but my parents had a brand new car it was kind of fancy yeah and uh the policeman got in and i could tell already he was just in a hostile mood and on top of that he said that i had a strange accent where where was i from well i had been in a boarding school when I was 16, I got a scholarship to, to a boarding school. So he said, Where are you from? And I said, Here. And he said, Well, why do you have that accent? And I said, Well, I've been away in school. Well, none of that set well with him. Wow. So he was so intimidating that I actually failed my driver's test. I mean, I was just really so shaken by, by his attitude. Uh, so you're always knowing that you're going to be intimidated by the police and you usually are ready for that, but not during your driver's test. So, but one other thing that I did during that time, I couldn't march because I had been in the hospital. I'd been really sick during that time. And subsequently I found out I had a chronic disease of lupus And my parents just would not let me participate in the marches. Mm. But I tried to do everything else that I could. So the first day they said the lunch counters were integrated in Birmingham and the stores. Unbeknownst to my parents, I decided I'm going to sit down at the lunch counter. If they serve me, I will go buy some shoes. (laughs) If they don't serve me, I'm going home. Mm. So first day, nobody knows I'm going to do this. I go into this department store, sit down at the lunch counter, and everything just kind of comes to a standstill. I mean, nobody says anything. Everybody's looking at each other. Uh, I ordered something. Nobody stopped me. They served me. And it was interesting that there were black cooks in the back and I could see them through the window and they were giving me the thumbs up <laughs> and, oh, and while I was doing this. And so I was I was very excited about that. I didn't think about being fearful or that somebody might do something to me, kind of like Fred Shuttlesworth. I just felt, look, this is the right thing to do. And so they served me. I left. I went and bought my shoes and I went home and told my parents and they almost had a heart attack. Oh,
0: wow. They started
1: calling the family. Guess what guilt did <laughs> today? Oh my goodness. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, as he said, it just seems like a normal thing to do. But then my, my family members were so shocked because this was dangerous during those times. So there are a lot of stories about the, the civil rights movement, but and as Fred would say, you didn't think you were doing leadership, and I only was able to appreciate that after I got into leadership studies and started looking at, okay, what type of leadership was that?
0: Let's talk about that, because you've written about invisible leadership, your book with Georgia Sorensen, you've written about common purpose, and and maybe we can even apply it to that context, if that's if that's a, a direction we could go in. Talk about how that informed some of your, that experience informed some of your, your thinking.
1: It influenced me totally. Hmm. I mean, it, it really formed my whole attitude about leadership and how people participate and how important the whole process is in terms of leaders and participants for leadership to work. And in looking back, once I got into the Jepson School in Leadership Studies, I realized that our involvement in the civil rights movement was so powerful because of the purpose yeah. that we so believed in and were inspired by the purpose that we were we were re- really willing to lead or follow. It didn't matter which one, as long as we were advancing the purpose and. Georgia Sorensen and I were at the Kellogg Leadership Studies Project when we were all talking about leadership uh, with James McGregor Burns and all the other scholars. And people were arguing about the leader and what the role of the leader is and on and on. And Georgia and I looked at each other and said, we're kind of sick of this argument. (laughs) about (laughs) All focused on the leader. What about what about everybody else? What about people being inspired because they really believe in what they're doing? Yes, and that's that was the start of our conversation about the common purpose as the leader. Yes, in, in other words, invisible leadership.
0: Well, and even as you're saying that. And I think about a couple of the stories you've shared. I mean, one one kind of basic definition of leadership, there's many, but we could talk about leadership being the process of influencing others towards a common vision. So let's just try that on for size for the sake of this conversation. But we could get into to your point. <laughs> seven hour, we could make this a seven-hour podcast about definitions. <laughs> you sitting in the front of the bus, inspiring others towards a common vision. People walked on the bus and saw you. Did you inspire others? That could be me. Uh, You sat at the counter, inspiring others towards a common vision. Those cooks went home that night and told their family. Others saw you kind of putting yourself out there. And even though you couldn't march, you believed in the purpose so strongly that you contributed in the ways that you could, which is incredible. I mean, thats I have goosebumps. That's just so wonderful.
1: Well, um, you know, I could... I could say inspiring others, and I totally believe that that is one way leadership works. I mean, so the way that Georgia and I looked at it does not exclude all the other ways that leadership works. Yeah. But for me, it wasn't so much uh, being inspired by a Martin Luther King. It was being inspired by the experiences we had had under segregation. Yeah. And knowing that the purpose of releasing us from that experience so that we could participate fully in the society was so important. It was so important that my parents and my counselors got me out of Birmingham to go to boarding school because Alabama schools were 49th out of the 50 states. Yeah. And I don't think I would be here now if someone had not had the vision to get me into a program that got me into boarding school. Mm. So, um, yes, I would say it's possible that I could have inspired others, but what inspired me was that strong purpose. And I think sometimes people do come together and inspire others to, to lead toward a, a common purpose or whatever. But in my case, it really was knowing having strong experiences with the reality. Let me just tell you one more story yeah, about yeah. what that's reality started. I was born in Baltimore. Okay. And my parents divorced when I was 3 and we moved my mom is from Alabama, so uh we came back to Alabama after my mom's divorce. And in in Baltimore, I was she would take me out and We'd go, sometimes we'd be at the drugstore and I'd pop up on the counter and get some ice cream. And so one day in Birmingham, we were in the Rexall drugstore and I popped up on the stool to get some ice cream. And this, the lady behind the counter started screaming at my mother, get her off of there, get her off of there. And I'm looking at my mother and I'm looking at her and I don't understand what's going on. And just to find out that no black people could be served at the lunch at the counter.
0: It's unconscionable today. It's un- it's it's I can't even begin to think about it.
1: It was such a common experience that if you go to the Civil Rights Institute, the first exhibit you see is the Rexall drug counter. Wow. I mean, I was just blown away by how how many people had had that same experience and it's just to a, a child of like four or something, I just was, I was stunned. I just didn't know what to make of that. So having had those experiences from a very young age, really nobody had to tell me that I should be a part of this movement. It, it And, um, you know, when Georgia and I did our study in Power of Invisible Leadership, we thought that You know, it's not just movements that people get inspired uh, by a common purpose, but organizations can do that as well. Businesses, nonprofits, and we decided to explore that because in in an ILA conference where we were having a discussion about the common purpose, Dick Kudo, as a matter of fact, said – well, I can see how that works in social movements, but I just can't see that in organizations. And we thought, no, 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 that can happen. <laughs> and so we had to prove it. And it was a good thing because we, I, our ILA colleagues put us to the test. Yeah. And we, we took them up on that. And we found out about uh, an organization called WorldBlue.com. Okay. And WorldBlue.com awards companies for having uh, democratic leadership in their organizations. And we thought, well, this might be a place where we can find the common purpose as a leader. We didn't know that for sure, but we thought they had a lot of characteristics that we had described about uh, having a powerful common purpose. Well, we were 100% right in that. Uh, we got access to 20 companies. Uh, we developed a survey instrument. The survey instrument proved to be very strong. And uh, there were these companies, these amazing companies, that had such motivating common purposes that many people said they joined the organization because the organization's purpose aligned with their own purpose. Yes, so it was another place. And Jepson School was like that for me. Huh. It was another place that totally aligned with who I am as a person. Yes. And so it is very possible to have this kind of leadership, even in a business, not not to mention nonprofit or
0: universities. So did you go back to Dick Kudo and say, hey, why don't you write the forward here, buddy? <laughs> 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 we did some poking, and guess what? <laughs> You're writing the <this> no, forward.
1: <laughs> no, but we did collaborate on uh, another book that I did on on uh, leadership in multiple contexts, and it, we talked about leading change. In uh, organizations, in social movements, in global environments, and he and, and I asked him to write one of the chapters. So. Yeah, well, and we wrote the introductory chapter together, actually.
0: Well, and you and you write about at least in an article that I read uh, from Jepsen that in these contexts, the leadership and followership roles are fluid. Uh, you you may Very spend fluid. a few moments in the role of leader informally, but then you might move back into follower. And so would you talk a little bit about that, the fluidity of things?
1: Yeah, this is exactly, this goes back to to my origins in the civil rights movement, where this is exactly the kind of leadership I saw moving back and forth among people. I mean, and I think about, I I remember this so well that my parents would pick people up walking down the street, going to work when we were boycotting the buses. And I thought the cooperation from the common per- common person during that time of not riding the buses when they absolutely needed to to get to work was a, a, an act of leadership. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that my parents had cars and they would pick up other people and take them to work so that they didn't have to ride the bus. Those were acts of leadership because yes. everybody knew what the common purpose was and they they did whatever they could to help that out. So you would see maybe a Fred Shuttlesworth who was a leader, also driving down the street to pick up people to take them to work. I mean, it was just a very fluid arrangement. And people could make decisions without, usually without asking other people, but sometimes in collaboration with them, but make decisions that they knew would advance the common purpose. And I was just kind of blown away by that. And by the way, uh, Mary Parker Follett. Yeah, yeah was the first person to come up with that term back in the 20s, in 1928. So when we were doing, and she was so far ahead of her time. I mean, I just love this woman's writing. I was exposed to it in the doctoral program, but when we were researching this whole concept, She described it perfectly in her writings uh, where she had gone into a company. This wasn't a social movement. She had gone into a company and witnessed workers being so supportive of the common purpose that they were taking leadership as well.
0: Yeah. Well, it reminds me of a book. It was a similar spirit to good to great, but it was called firms of endearment. And it's these organizations where, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Patagonia where we are donating all of our Black Friday sales to, to the environment and where people are so motivated by the purpose of the organization, the values of the organization, what the organization stands for, that that becomes a driving force uh, for their motivation. It's not a person or an individual it's this is this is our mission this is what we are uh, trying to achieve and striving for whether it's something like Jepson where it just aligned beautifully with your values or maybe people who are working on the sustainable development goals or in organizations like Patagonia it was interesting because these firms were outperforming the good to great companies by a lot
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> because
0: again you know, whether it's like a Tom's Shoes or other organizations that really had that spirit about them. Uh, and I think you also wrote about the orchestra. What's the orchestra called? Yes. Orpheus?
1: Orpheus? Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, yes. Talk a
0: little bit about that.
1: Oh, that that's so motivating to me. Every time I actually make a presentation on Invisible Leadership, I I play a, a piece from them and, and actually... Um, they go on to talk about how without a designated leader, they are able to inspire all of the people who are in the orchestra to want to strive for this goal of, of, of playing music at its best and bringing out the talents of each orchestra member. Mm. And I remember they have Richard Hackman, who has done all this work on, who did all this work on teams. And he talks about how he uses that in his classroom to teach his, his students about how one motivates and leads through having such an inspiring purpose. And the, the Orpheus orchestra is just incredible. I've seen them in person uh, and you, you don't, you don't see a conductor get up. You just see them kind of look at each other and, and have cues. And, and you look at they they have a, a critical group that comes, and it's a different one for each piece that they they decide to to develop. But they have a critical mass that starts out presenting a, uh, or putting together the way a piece should go, and then as they refine it, they bring in more and more members of the orchestra, and then they play different roles with each other. Sometimes they're the critics, and they're playing for each other and say, let's try it this way. And it comes out even better because of all that talented input, which is something that I've always tried to inspire organizations to do. Mm. I mean, I think there's so much wasted talent in an organization when they don't allow people to use their full potential and they don't draw from that. And I think Orpheus is just a great inspiration for, for that idea.
0: Or or tap into that charisma of purpose that the two of you write about. Would you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I remember uh, the late Steve Jobs. He had a lot of issues, but I think he was right on this one. <laughs> and, and he was saying that, um, when they when they invented the Macintosh, they had this special team, and he was saying, "We didn't just want the Macintosh to be uh, a great computer. Our goal is to change the way people see computing hmm. and what people can imagine doing with it." Yep. And I thought, okay, that's an inspiring purpose. And the the Macintosh team, I don't. If you go back and look at the original footage of them. Uh, putting together the Macintosh, they're so excited. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're talking to each other all the time about it, they're exchanging information, they're just excited to see it work. And that's and that's also the way we were in the Jepson School. I mean, we so believed in its purpose and what it, it could do, and how it could change students, and how students could be different people in the world, no matter what. Uh, feel they went into that we were working all the time yeah when we first started we were in there on Sundays I mean yeah and and it's so hard to explain the excitement in an organization when you were working in that way because you're not only working for yourself but you're constantly working with each other and exchanging ideas and as one one of the um, people said, in the in our survey, that you actually become friends, and you're and you become people you want to hang out with yeah. inside and outside the organization. Yeah. It just changes the whole dynamic. Uh, it's so hard to explain until you see it in action, but. Not only were we there every day, including Sundays, because we had a million courses to bring up from scratch. We didn't have textbooks, so we were having to write our own textbooks. And if you could see us yelling across the hall to each other, you know, we, we weren't thinking about whether that looked professional. I was like, hey, Tom, are you gonna, what are you going to teach today? Are you going to use this? Do you have something I could borrow? I mean, it was so fluid. And there was, you just didn't have competition. You have people so willing to learn with and from each other. Hmm. That's what charisma of purpose really does in an organization.
0: Gil, can you think of some contemporary examples that have stood out for you that you see through the lens of your work?
1: Well, let's see. Um, We did, we did write about not only the Orpheus orchestra and and um, actually, when I do presentations, I show them a f- a little film from the Jefferson School's twentieth anniversary where we talk about our own actions um there's a there's a large company that deals with kidney dialysis called la lavita and it it's so people ask us, can this really work in large companies and David has thousands of um, kidney dialysis offices around the country and some around the world. Mm-hmm. And they were actually failing. They were about to close. And they the, the owners decided to have a town meeting and call together all the employees to decide how they could continue. And the input of all the employees coming together to develop this common purpose they're like look we're here devita actually means giving life yeah we are here to give life to people through our services and and they moved from there to having all the employees give input into how they could survive and not only did they survive but they really thrived as a company but they kept this town hall concept and this this concept where everybody came to give their input to to keep the company going and to be inspired by their purpose. And so that's a large company that that makes that work with all the facilities throughout the the country.
0: Yeah. Well that that charisma of the purpose that that invisible leadership it's such an interesting way to think about it and and the stories you shared at the beginning of our discussion are so important and even even as you're telling the story of those early days at Jepsen, I mean, you light up and you're you're animated and you're smiling and and you can tell that you felt that, I mean, intensely. And and I have felt that in an organization. I've I've felt that. And I've not felt that at times. And there's a stark right. difference. There is a stark, there's a stark
1: difference. difference. People in the leadership roles. Really have to develop a lot of confidence. They have to have a lot of trust in the people that they're hiring. It has a lot to do with with the, with hiring people also who are are really interested in in carrying out that common purpose. We sent out open if We started with open ended questionnaires, and I have never seen anybody write that much information back to to the people who are doing questionnaires. I mean, people were so into it. They were writing us pages. And there was so much to draw from that we did a whole chapter just on things that they told us. It really is is something that once you experience it, you don't want to go back. You don't want to go into an organization that doesn't do that. And I think even... Even an organization that makes widgets can figure out what it is about what they do and what they can do for the world that can inspire them, but they usually don't sit down and do it. Yeah. Uh, And people are more interested in control than they are finding all of the um, qualities that... and. Things that people can offer to the organization, but once you open up, because I've experimented with it even in bureaucratic organizations mm. as a human resource director. When I came into my office, I decided that you know everybody, I don't care what their role was, was going to contribute and was going to be involved in decision making and how the office was and how the whole operation was going to run. Yeah, and we'd have. We'd have these retreats before retreats were in style, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where everybody came brought together what they what they had achieved, what they wanted to achieve, and what the obstacles were and you would see. After we did this for a while, you would see the receptionist problem solving with one of the personnel analysts or giving them information. I know of an organization that does this call so-and-so. And And they, they were telling me for the first time they understood what everybody did in the organization and we were experimenting with giving people more and more things to do that they were interested in doing. Yeah, And it just, it just changed the whole dynamic. So you can do that even in your own unit, even if the whole organization is not doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, we can find that purpose among our small team of what maybe we can control versus feeling like we have to create that within the whole organization of 60,000 people or something. I mean, I think I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that can be facilitated. It's about Kathy Allen wrote just this beautiful article. I'm not going to say the title correctly, but it was about energy optimization and, and, but it was all about, are you unleashing the energy of the people and getting them to move in a common direction? Or is that energy kind of squelched? and
1: exactly
0: i mean it was such a powerful i'll put a link to it in the show notes and i'll put a link to invisible leadership in the show notes and well so as we close, as we wind down for the day what have you been listening to what have you been streaming what have you been watching that has caught your eye in recent months
1: well you know i um i only do podcasts kind of off and on um you know, like TED talks and things like that. But I read a lot of biographies and memoirs, and I'm current currently actually reading President Obama's memoirs on his first term in office. Yes. So, but but that's the kind of thing I love. I, I just love real stories about how people got where they are, how they think, uh, what inspires them, what they. What they had to go through in order to get where they are, yeah. Um, which, which is is a, another thing that I deal with in another book, but we won't we won't get we won't get to that. But I am inspired by uh, biographies and memoirs. Yeah. What real people actually experience.
0: My son was reading was reading that. I have not read it yet. But he said that he's still in Iowa. There was a, apparently there was a long section on Iowa.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I liked his earlier books actually better than this one. Yeah. But this one uh, goes through. And I think it's because we know about so many of the things the experiences that he talks about. Yeah. Whereas the, the earlier books we did not know about his younger life, his father, all of that. Yeah. And I think I found that more interesting, but this is still good. Oh,
0: it's it's fascinating what what they're going through, right? The detail of, of that experience. It's it's surreal. Anyone who, who takes on a leadership role at that level, that's a that's a, a different animal. <laughs> yeah, I
1: I really would like to know more about their motivation, because what they have to go through in order oh. to be a leader at that level. I don't know if many people could take that on. Yeah. I know I couldn't. Oh.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for sharing your work for doing the work that you do. I would love to have you come back and talk about your most recent work at some point. We need to do that because you're right. We didn't get to it today. But yeah. would you be open to that down the road?
1: Yeah, when leaders face personal crisis, it it it's another whole experience.
0: We'll talk and about that. And it's
1: different for me cuz I don't write about leaders usually. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Well, we will put that on the agenda.
1: <laughs> All right, that sounds good. <laughs> I really okay. enjoyed being with you today. Oh,
0: thank you so much. We really really appreciate it. Be well.
1: All right, thank you.
0: I am going to conclude this podcast with A reading, one of my favorite paragraphs from this article on invisible leadership, and it suggests the following, deeply committed to the common purpose, participants come to the process with a willingness to serve as either leaders or followers with or without personal recognition. Furthermore, as noted earlier, visible and invisible roles are flexible. A person may have a high profile role at one point and be working behind the scenes at another. This is a topic I'm going to continue to reflect upon. Is the purpose bigger than the person? How do we create scenarios in organizational life that has that compelling purpose, that compelling vision, where in many ways, roles become less important because what we are working to obtain, what we are trying to achieve is so central to every one of us, to our values, to our beliefs, to our objectives that that serves as the leader, the invisible leader. Boy, I'm going to reflect on that. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thank you to Dr. Hickman. Have a wonderful day. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, -o Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now... Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.